Hey guys, uh, welcome back to another episode of The Political Adventurist. As always, I'm your host, Anthony. Uh, this episode, I'm joined by an unfamiliar face, but we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in the episode. Um, for now, I kind of want to talk about just a recent update with the podcast. If you didn't see on my Instagram, uh, the reason I haven't been uploading as consistently as I used to is because I've just generally had a lack of motivation because of other things such as classes and just social life and things like that, but also because of the purveying nature of basically what's been deemed to be cancel culture which is essentially that uh, lines of thought are being branded as, as things uh, that are totally unrealistic to what those ideologies are. And I, I find that to be uh, pretty stifling to intellectual creativity. So uh, without further ado, uh, my guest, someone I, I've never even met in person, um, and he's heavily influenced me to restart uh, the podcast uh, as well as my friends and close friends and family have. Um, and it just goes to show that the reach of this podcast will hopefully be limitless. Um, so without further ado, please, uh, introduce yourself and, uh, give it away or take it away. Hey folks. Uh, my name is Andre. I am a college student, uh, studying aeronautical engineering at uh, Southern New Hampshire university. Uh, I don't think I need to tell you what state that's in. Um, <clears throat> I am what one would call a concerned citizen, uh, in terms of politics nowadays, and I thought coming onto this podcast would serve as a nice medium to display my thoughts to the world and to the people I have told of this podcast to kind of get an idea as to what I believe things are to get people interested in in what I'm talking about, to, to listen to what I say and say, where does he get that from and to involve themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I definitely like your intellectual uh, concern. Uh, my only question is because I obviously uh, haven't met you before, um, before we started this is what are the main talking points, what are the main issues in American politics today that really speak to you? Um, I'd say one, one subject particularly, it's over everything else. It's not related to a particular controversial topic or anything. It's just a general trend that I, I want to see more, uh, more exposure on. And that is discourse more specifically the method with which uh, we approach discourse and nowadays in terms of politics or anything controversial or any discussion like that and i i imagine you you want a little bit more than that as that's a a, a bit of a broad topic so let me let me let me narrow the scope a little bit i want to talk about political arguments how they are nowadays think anthony and the viewer at home think Uh, back to the last time you've seen a political argument. You don't need to think that far. Uh, You'll kind of know what I'm talking about. The debates between Trump and Biden during the race um, are a good one. Uh, Two people of opposite political parties that just simply won't afford each other an inch in an argument. Uh, They they will just fling, fling accusations. They'll fling ad hominems. They'll fling you know, fallacies back and forth at each other. There's no construction. There's no, there's no admission, you know, there's no admission of fact. There's no construction. There's no cross-referencing of data and coming to a better conclusion. There's no compromise. That's the word I'm looking for is compromise. Mm-hmm. Well, I totally get that point of view. And that's something I've made very clear on this podcast is that something we're going to focus on is intellectual conversation and civil discourse, things that you say. Whether it's people that happen to be on uh, similar political aisles as myself, and I believe that should be the case here, or if it's someone who's on a different political aisle, I think that's something that we're going to keep very consistent 
uh, through the, the course of these episodes. So again, I really appreciate you ha- having you on. Uh, and let's get right into it. So any current, you know, political, I guess you could say events you want to dive into first and Biden bills. I know you were talking to me a little bit about, so anything, you know, that piqued your interest, let's, let's give it a go. Let's, let's, let's start, let's start let's- this off. Let's start with H.R. 127, uh, Biden's proposed federal gun control bill. How much do you know about H.R. 127? Uh, from from what I know, I believe it's, um, again, though, I'm, I'm getting it a bit confused with the rhetoric of people in his party, but I believe it could be a ban on automatic, no, a ban, a ban on assault rifles and a closing of the loopholes in certain uh, background checks on a federal level. So that's what I believe it around to be, so... Um, obviously, please enlighten me. Uh, the HR 127 is, does include those two, uh, amongst many other things. Um, if you're familiar with Vermont's uh, gun re- legislation, which you may or may not be, citizens of Vermont would definitely be, uh, it's essentially imposing very similar restrictions to Vermont, which is to say the possession of magazines no more than 10 rounds in size, the banning of automatic handguns or any weapon capable of automatic firing, uh, this would include the Glock 18, most uh, most famously, um, and among uh, and a whole bunch of other things. Certain guns now ha- now are banned. Uh, certain makes of weapons, certain families of weapons are now completely banned. Um, I don't have the families beside me, but I do know that Mitchell is one of them. Even though I've never really heard of Mitchell firearms, it was included on the bill for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of weapon uh, weapon types, such as pistols and shotguns, have a bunch of uh, restrictions placed upon them, where you can have no more than three of so, uh, a list of features, or else the weapon itself is illegal and you cannot own it. Mm-hmm. And the the main issue, uh, as myself, a a gun rights a, a gun rights proponent, someone that would prefer to have um, more availability of firearms than control over firearms. My my first issue with this bill is main is of course how it limits firearms. But let's put that aside just for this moment to talk about one particularly uh, interesting thing about a federal gun control bill is if this bill comes to pass, and whether or not you think it will is up to you, um, but whether or not this comes to pass, my main question would be to, to, to just is in general, this doesn't have an answer, but my main question is how can they enforce a bill like this? It creates a logistical nightmare, and allow me to add that there is no grandfathering. Most state legislature, in terms of gun control, usually grandfathers. Vermont does. Uh, the federal bill does not. So they are going to have to go back through a gun owners that have owned firearms from as far back as the early 20th century to try and revoke their firearms from them. Gas-powered weaponry was invented around World War I, so that's the earliest you've got of people owning weapons of that type, whether through the military service or through civilian or through being a civilian. So how are they going to possibly go and confiscate all of this illegal stuff? Because people aren't going to just give it to them. The South isn't just going to give it to them. I think you and I both know that. So the, the question I have is, how are they going to enforce this? This bill just seems like a blank check at best and a complete disruption of the Second Amendment at worst. Mm-hmm. It's so, tyranny. Yeah, so my, my argument is actually very similar to that. Now, um, I do agree that this does violate the Second Amendment, but I will say this. So the, the Second Amendment is inherently a contradiction of itself, and that's obviously a pretty 
a known talking point. That the first part says that it is uh, well within the, the role and the jurisdiction of the government to provide for a well-regulated militia and make sure that it is essentially capable of defending the country. That's the gist of it. And then the second part separated by a comma, which is, you know, according to some, like, English majors, um, that apparently denotes a contradiction or a pause. Or it's it, That comma's been denoted to mean, uh, or been construed to mean multiple things. But basically the second part of that would obviously be that the civilians have the right to bear arms in case of, of tyranny from the government. Now, what I personally believe is that, you know, people don't need to be walking around with automatic rifles. If you're trying to defend yourself, there are incredibly way, effective ways of doing that. And I believe Michael Savage, who is a pretty popular podcaster, uh, advocates for, like, having a shotgun and a revolver for home defense. And I think that's pretty ideal. Um, but what is necessary is the right to, to be able to, obviously, purchase a firearm should you need it. Here's my philosophical belief on that. One, as you say, it's logistically incredibly hard for the government to round up all of the guns that civilians own. It does uh, it trample on a right that we have. But my backing for that right, with with regards to like you know examples like the mass shooting, like the terrible uh, mass shooting that was in Border, Colorado, and how it's being used as a justification to uh, limit the amount of firearms in circulation. Is that six and ten of every um, every crime with a gun, every I guess act of violence, every murder with a weapon, uh, every murder with a, a firearm that is uh, is suicide. So before we talk about this issue of gun violence, which is a very prevalent issue, no doubt, uh, based on the shootings, the terrible shootings uh, that have occurred in so many uh, innocent settings, um, we need to talk about maybe increasing our suicide prevention methods. That's probably a first, I would say, if we're going to look at statistics solely. But in terms of a philosophical approach, I fundamentally believe that tyranny from the government, whatever, tyranny can come in so many forms. Not only from an oppressive government that decides to be totalitarian and abandon the ways of the Constitution, but tyranny can also come from people around you. If law-abiding citizens can't be allowed to purchase weaponry or have are going to have an incredibly hard time purchasing weaponry... When they ultimately will abide the law and not use it in any way that is in any way really destructive, it will just promote illegal activity. And another argument which I'm going to get into obviously after you respond would be how the illegal market doesn't really eliminate the market, which would be another talking point. Um, but yeah, so fundamentally I see no reason why we need to strip law-abiding citizens of their weapons grandfathered in. Uh, etc. So I'm personally, and this is going to lead into what I talk about more at the end of the podcast, which I'm gonna I'm gonna take this uh, into a more philosophical approach when I'm assessing uh, key issues like this. But I obviously would agree with your sentiment. If you have any other kind of information to add with that, otherwise I could go on with my talking point about the markets. Your yeah, your philosophy is on the right track. Um, gun. First of all, to address uh, to address the suicide rate, that is very true. Six out of ten of all gun crimes in America, flat, are are suicides, where they've turned the weapon on themselves. And I and not only this, but a vast majority of the mass shootings that have taken place in, since 1999, and yes, this includes this includes Columbine, um, is the idea that the mass shooters, the people that turn their weapons on the public and slaughter massive amounts of people in these tragedies are not mentally well. 
it's in every one of their manifestos. You see this, the mental corruption that it takes to twist yourself into believing that this is in some way justified or a, or, or in some good or in some way acting as retribution. You can tell that these people are mentally disturbed and that they just didn't get help that they should have gotten. And it's what led them to do this. And I think that the government is, is doing something very wrong focusing on weapons instead of the person behind it. We should care more about the individuals in this country and their mental well-being. I think if the government want, actually cared about reducing gun crime itself, they would focus instead on bolstering the, uh, the amount of available help for people that are suffering from mental illnesses or in some way just you know, in highlighting the fact that mental illness is a very large part of of why suicides and, and gun crime are committed today. It's mm -hmm. the that's that's the face of tragic gun crime. That's what I'll say about about that part of it. The suicides and the mass shootings. That's mm -hmm. what I'll say. Uh, secondly, getting into the fact that these laws don't restrict criminals. These laws restrict law-abiding citizens from obtaining something that they could potentially use to stop a firearm crime from happening. How many times have we heard of stories of of people who have been who have had a home invasion happen to them from a robber or someone even worse and have been able to stand their ground and defend themselves against a criminal that would seek to end their lives or to disrupt their livelihood. This will only make it more difficult for the average law-abiding citizen to defend themselves when they have no choice mm -hmm. otherwise and when their very livelihoods or rights are infringed upon. Right. Well, and, and the third point about black market firearms, I have a statistic here that I had that I got, and I, I I did a senior at my senior essay in high school was on uh, gun crime, specifically uh, specifically in favor of gun rights over gun control, and one of the major points that I'd found during my research is that nine out of ten uh, nine out of ten convicted criminals, people found guilty of crime of gun crime, admitted to their weapon being purchased on the black market. Wow. So yeah, that was actually going to lead right into the point that I wanted to make about illegal markets and the prohibition effect. So essentially, the context of that being that prohibition was obviously um, the period of time in which alcohol was illegal. And the reasoning for this was mainly due to World War I, uh, the Empire of Germany, the, 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 the Reich, um, being a major exporter of beer. And that was obviously heavily attributed to if you were German, you drink a lot. That's still a correlation that's made today. Still kind of a stereotype. Oktoberfest. Um, Oktoberfest is a very good example. That actually leads into what I was going to say. But um, So that was obviously a war-related, a foreign um, policy-related decision. Uh, and that's actually why the Ku Klux Klan was formed, was to regulate bootlegging. But obviously, you know, the market of alcohol didn't just vanish like that. While statistically speaking, uh, in terms of real GDP... In the U.S., whenever something becomes illegal, it, it doesn't really change the GDP because uh, it's as if that market never existed. That's simply how they treat it, so there's no change, really. Um, but that market's still an underground market, and when you make things illegal, when you put things uh, in the underground, you make them more dangerous, and you threaten, again, as you said, law-abiding citizens. It's not like every single or a, st a statistical majority of people who have purchased guns commit gun crimes i mean my dad legally owns two firearms and he doesn't you know go around blasting of course that's a very individualist example but either way i think we should 
act in terms of liberty, which may be regarded as naive, that people will say, oh, because of access to these guns, mass shootings will happen. Uh, and that might be partially true, maybe. But I believe in securing liberty as the first and foremost over security. And my next point that I was going to bring up is that this debate is very similar to my thoughts on marijuana and some other drugs. Obviously, marijuana is mainly the prime one, though. Allowing for marijuana, allowing for firearms even, would increase our country's GDP. I'm thinking about an economic sense. Our GDP is obviously how much we put out every year. Basically, our, our net output of all of the goods that we have in our markets. Obviously, because the U.S. is so developed, it's in the, you know, billions. Allowing for gun manufacturing, gun production to be, to happen, to happen more freely, and allowing for marijuana production, things like that, not only will have a huge economic effect in terms of, obviously, people who are already investing in marijuana stocks and profiting usually off of it, as my friends are, um, but it would it would also have a, a moral, and I believe, a, um, a more liberty-based uh, foundation for why we should keep those things. So it's, it's a similar debate because, you know, um, marijuana obviously has negative effects on people. It distorts your uh, awareness, obviously. But I feel like, as you, as you said, the main talking point should be that we address the people that wield these weapons as opposed to the weapons themselves. So that is an excellent talking point for that. And another point I was going to bring up, which is slightly unrelated, is, is how you said mentally ill people and you didn't mention race or anything like that. The main argument for when it comes to acts of massive violence is that the media portrays, for example, the shooter who was white who shot up the Asian spies, mentally disturbed, yada yada, that the media portrayed him that or as that, or, or people around who were involved in the situation portrayed him like that. Um, and that someone, obviously, of African-American or uh, of Middle Eastern descent, if he did that, he or she did that in America, it would be obviously like... Uh, that they're a terrorist and that they're no good and it's not there's not that same sugar coatery sugar coating thing and that turns into a debate about identity politics and i think what you said was perfect is that you just said people that anyone who commits a a violent crime like that with a firearm is just simply a mentally ill criminal independent of color etc and i believe that this is the foundation or one of the one of the supplementary points at least of why I personally am not a critical race theorist. Obviously, critical race being that we must critically investigate the laws and the um, essentially the institutions that we have in this country to make sure that uh, to to provide evidence for the fact that there are specific uh, minority groups that are being dis disparaged or being uh, put down. Essentially, I don't believe in that. I believe we should work towards the ideal. And obviously, a critical understanding of the law is essential for any citizen. That's totally understandable. But to instantly assume that there is just a a presence of identity politics, while America is not perfect, no doubt, I will say that there is there are race there is racism in America, hundred percent. But for us to rectify that problem, I think we should hold that same view that everyone is equal and that doesn't matter what your skin color, a very basic and very idealist view that we should try to promote instead of grounding ourselves in the unfortunate reality of the situation. So a little bit of an unfortunate debate, but just, or a little bit of an unrelated uh, talking point, but just your thoughts on that general idea. My, my thoughts on that general idea is that I do, I do indeed agree. I, I feel that identity politics themselves, even postulating that because of, because of any particular identity uh, that an individual belongs to, meaning that they're more or less likely to, uh, to commit a crime 
for XYZ reason is in, is in it itself inherently truly racist. That is where the racism actually lies, not in a, the accusation of, of people who, who, who uh, commit mass murder against people of a certain creed or color. It's rather postulating that they themselves did it because not because that they are that they were mentally unwell or led to believe or led to believe some kind of grand delusion. Uh, but instead, were because they were a skin color. I think it's I think it's massively misrepresenting a greater problem in this country as a whole, which is to say the lack of mental health awareness. And I do think that it's absolutely horrible that these mass shootings keep happening. Mm -hmm. I and I think and I think they will continue to keep happening until until the media can discern and and educate the populace on the true reasoning why it's happening. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are. You are just as easily able to be men uh, led to del to delude yourself or to become mentally unwell for any reason at all. We we see people. Um, if you're not familiar with the individual Terry A. Davis, he was uh, he was an individual. He's very well known on the on the internet. So I'll give a, I'll give a synopsis of who he was. He used to be a very accomplished en a software engineer, who had at some point in his life. Um, developed schizophrenia uh and it's postulated this this was likely due to stress while it did not lead him to commit a mass shooting it led him to delude himself into believing that he was sent on a mission by god to develop uh, a software uh, a, a, an operating system to talk to god and and th that's it could happen to anyone that just goes to show he was an accomplished engineer who clearly knew he was doing very successful at it so much so that he developed an entire operating system by himself in 10 years while yes suffering from schizophrenia but his skills were still there but it can happen to anyone it's not because he's white it's not because he's an engineer it's because he's just as susceptible to being a flawed person as anyone else and should just be and should just as well be entitled to getting the help he needs to return to normalcy to return to being in a fit mental state and being able to operate in this country because it's stressful it's a very idealist point. I believe the counter to it would be that it's too naive, but I prefer, honestly, in a philosophical approach, uh, the naive over the just grounding reality that does not change. So um, that's an excellent talking point to bring up. And I believe it also what you're saying has foundations in how we construe debates and the, uh, uh, the, the concept that you brought up in the beginning of, of discourse and how we can have intellectual conversations with each other. Uh, as people are branded uh, racist and things like that and therefore have no more credibility. Um, so that's definitely a big issue with that. Um, obviously it's the same kind of it's the same kind of system that we've been, become so enthralled or that a political ideology has become so enthralled with identity politics that it's starting to stifle creativity. It's also a major motivating factor as to why I uh, heavily considered discontinuing this podcast. So I know you want to say something about that specific trend. I I would say that if people want a particular angle as to why this this is happening, because there's a lot of we see a lot of it. We see the cancel culture on Twitter. We see the deplatforming of politicians and other individuals that are trying to state um, that are trying to state a platform and get called racist and deplatformed and demonized. Their entire career has been destroyed. We've seen this multiple times now in the past five years. There have been several politicians that have been completely, their careers have been completely destroyed because of accusations hurled at them over, over making an argument for the sake of making that argument and for the sake of, of going off and postulating something to create a debate. And I, I think that's horrible. I, I think that it's a cultural issue. We've developed this cultural issue 
somehow I, I would say personally my own opinion on it is that I think it's I think it's a derivative of McCarthyism from the Cold War. So it's I, yeah, so we'll we'll get into that point. What I wanted to also bring up because I know we've been talking a lot about this before this episode. Uh, so I'm going to definitely give you a full opportunity to speak on this because I know you have a lot to say on it. But um, I think it could go both ways. I think anyone could get branded as a racist, uh, just as, as any progressive, someone who believes in, say, Keynesian economics, could get branded as a communist, even though that's totally unrealistic. So it is truly both sides of the coin here. And what you bring up with Twitter, we'll get into social media after you make, obviously, your point regarding uh, regarding what you were saying earlier. Um, but... What, when it comes to social media, you can see even both sides of the aisle come together regarding a social media ban. When Trump was banned off Twitter, actually, Bernie Sanders just recently made comments calling it out and saying that while he does whatever he thinks about Trump is whatever he thinks about Trump, but he still is uncomfortable with the fact that Twitter d did that. And that begs the question which I now present to you, which is how has the power of social media really warped how we get information and created the cultural trend that you described? Uh, I would say that the so I would say that just this general statement. I think that, in my own opinion, social media censoring any individual is stupid for any reason at all. Especially with how widespread it's gotten nowadays. Uh, Twitter is everywhere. Everyone's on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. I don't think you are either. I'm on Twitter <laughs> but, just for stocks. I'm on Twitter just are... to follow, you know, what's happening yeah. with Teslarati and things like but that. But that's the thing. Not everybody's on Twitter just for politics. You just made yourself a good a good anecdotal example. Exactly. Is that people can go on Twitter for any reason. Economy, politics, science. It's it's a universal platform. It has so much application on it. So why then should they need should they take it upon themselves to look at an individual and say this individual should be taken off of our platform, completely deplatformed? For, for whatever reason at all, whether it be a difference in opinion. And it seems with Trump's, with Trump's situation, it looks like Twitter just simply did not like what he was posting and got rid of it, it because they haven't provided an explanation. Mm -hmm. They haven't at all. They're, not a good one, anyway. I think the argument for banning them is basically an, a debate of liberty versus security. And here's where I'm going to get into my more philosophical points. I feel that when it comes to information, when it comes to wealth, whatever... I believe in the invisible hand theory proposed by Adam Smith. And what the invisible hand theory basically states is that if completely left to their own devices, or at least mostly left to their own devices, society will eventually regulate itself and eventually contribute, or members of society, individuals who are prospering, will indirectly contribute to society as a whole. And that's a more individualist uh, thought pattern. I think this applies perfectly to information. I believe in social media platforms that basically have little to no filter. Obviously, if they are directly inciting violence against un absolutely unwarranted violence and just plain to see, but that's obviously a matter of interpretation, but very limited, very limited censorship, very limited, if, if even at all. But to provide discourse, I believe that society will weed out what they believe is not factual. It will happen essentially by itself, that people will be guided to certain s spheres of influence. You can see this basically just how, as, how we refer to... Um how we refer to conspiracy theories. I mean, we've we've called them out. They've been allowed to be put on the internet. There are obviously websites where you can access these conspiracy conspiracy theories about like the moon landing or whatever. But um, we as a society have come towards basically not allowing that to be in our main sphere of influence. So I feel like that invisible hand theory kind of applies here and does not warrant 
uh, censoring. Now, the, the main argument, I believe, for Twitter uh, when they were censoring, or an argument made by at least its its support the supporters of the ban and partially the company, was that the uh, CEO believed that they were in violation of the terms, which does not allow for the glorification of violence, I believe was the language that they used. And the another argument that they that was used uh, mainly by the C, by the uh, supporters of the decision was that uh, tr Twitter is a private company and has the right to ban whoever they want. And there's no real as someone who believes in private property and the right to do whatever you want with what you own. I can't disagree with that. It is a private corporation. It is not a public a public forum. No, nothing really is. Reddit isn't. You know, uh, Twitter isn't. Obviously, Facebook isn't. However. The issue becomes, as people form their own social media platforms, they are bought out or rendered obsolete because of the grip that Amazon and other big tech has on the information source through back-end servers and things like that. They are made obsolete and there is no chance that they can survive, which is a big issue. That is the fundamental flaw of capitalism that I'm seeing, but I believe it is rectifiable in time. But that is a big issue. So you, obviously I've kind of said a, a mouthful on this. So obviously your chance to respond. I'm going to postulate one thing in response. You obviously show to have a great amount of faith in the people. You you seem to be a very uh, – you a follower of Locke, right? To believe that people are inherently good and inherently act in the best interest of others. Allow me to postulate this, though, to augment the augment that perspective. Is I would agree. But what we see in today's culture – does not seem like uh, American culture is very ha subscribes to that kind of uh, philosophy, mainly because with cancel culture and with what we're seeing in politics today, back to discourse once more, is that if if people were inherently good, if people inherently sought the truth and sought to distribute that truth, why then do we see the same cycle of cancel culture, the same cycle of demonization and calling people racist to deplatform them? Why do we see that happening in perpetuity? Because people don't wish to seek the truth. I find it. I find it strange. I find it very strange, and I think it's. I think it's tied absolutely into our culture that we've developed and that we need to get rid of. That's a very good counter to my invisible hand theory. But again, I can't speak for everyone. I will say that people tend to be that way, though. Obviously, I think. I think that in time, I trust that in time, after we return to normalcy, maybe. For whatever reason, as illogical as this sounds, it required for Trump to be voted out of office or requires for Biden to be voted out. I am hopeful that in time we will hopefully return to a more uh, politically active and politically intellectual society, uh, as you described. So that's the naive. That's at that point, people who are basically for and against the invisible hand. Um, it's it's really just a dispute of human nature. I feel like eventually everything will open up. Uh, despite this period of censorship that we are experiencing now. Um, but either way, uh, because we've talked a lot about discourse and uh, intellectual conversation, I kind of want to keep the uh, conversation moving a little bit to the next talking point, which I want to present, which you've shown a lot of interest in, is uh, Biden's clean energy and labor plan. So obviously, since I, th I believe I started first, did I start first? Well, doesn't matter. Just take it away with your with what you know about it and your take. Take two is take two, folks. Uh, <clears throat> the energy bill. So I did a little bit of, of independent research on that one because I wasn't familiar with it before I came onto the show. And uh, essentially, from what I can tell, the synopsis is Biden is going moving towards more green energy, such as solar and, and wind and you know hydroelectric and, and similar things like that that are 
more uh, suited to the environment, but produce way less energy. Uh, that's that's the synopsis of the energy bill. You're free to read it on your own. It's it's um, public commons. I'm pretty sure that stuff's released publicly. So if you aren't if you want to check it out yourself, you're always encouraged to. I'd say good idea. But my own stance on the energy bill is that green energy is a noble idea. Uh, but the issue is that the issue with green energy, as has been described by many people, uh, many people that know what they're talking about in the energy industry that run private businesses, is that green energy uh, is is far on the side of environment, but not far on the uh, but very far away from the side of economy. Let's say, for example, that there's a spectrum. On the left, there is environment. On the right, there is economical. Most fall within being one and not the other. However, one type of energy is the best agreement between the two. Mm-hmm. Nuclear. Big shocker. I'm going, make, <laughs> I'm going to make I'm going to make an assertion, and then I'm uh, and then you know I I'm going to let it go to you for a little bit, and then uh, if you say your piece, and then it'll come back to me. But I want to make the assertion that nuclear energy is the future of energy production, that it is the safest form of energy production. And that it is the best for the environment, bar none. Interesting, hot take there from uh, from from Andre here. But yeah, no, I I would totally disagree with that. Oh, disagree. Wow, I would totally agree with that point, definitely. And I feel like what you just described is a fundamental flaw of the Republican Party specifically right now. Is that too many of them are being wrapped up in this conservativist uh, or traditionalist view of um, climate change isn't real and things like that. And they want to preserve what they've had, which is a point I'm sure, which is a point you've definitely told me about and and we've talked about. Um, so I think that's a terrible point for them. I think there's such an easy way we can make, uh, environmental change more of a capitalist aspect and have it benefit the economy as you describe. And I think nuclear energy is that compromise. Here's what I think specifically with regards to the Biden plan. I, have, I see no issue with moving the American economy greener and lowering fossil fuels and things like that. Obviously, within time, as fossil fuels make up basically 95% of the factories that we have uh, in the country, both military and civilian, which is a Hoi 4 joke for all of the Hoi 4 players in the audience. Um, but uh, I definitely I see no issue with it. But the only thing that I see, and this also applies to his stopping of the construction of the wall, was that I wish that labor opportunities were already created before those actions passed. So instead of the wall, so instead of just stopping construction of the wall and cutting off basically thousands of jobs of people with very specialized labor, which is an Adam Smith uh, idea, um, there should have already been a setup involved to instantly, almost instantly, maybe a couple of days, maybe a week layoff, to instantly move them to something that would differ in policy. There's no reason why you know, thousands of fathers and mothers should come home with no job simply because of a change in policy. That no matter what we do, our policy must benefit the American worker and the middle and lower class. That has to be it. So that I think was wrong. And that wall wall comment also applies to the Keystone Pipeline. He suddenly stopped construction of the Keystone Pipeline and is now talking to labor administrators regarding how he's going to put the workforce back to work with regards to clean energy. That's something respectable, that he does care about uh, the labor force, and that's an important talking point. That is something I respect about him, but 
I wish that that fallback plan had already been present when he stopped construction of the Keystone Pipeline because that is a major talking point. Has He's also stopped fracking in key areas like Pennsylvania, which goes back to what I said a few episodes ago about him trying to keep promises that he's made. Um, but I, I only wish that he, he would already have the research and the uh, economic fallback plan that he's trying to institute. Obviously, it's going to take time and energy uh, to do that, but that's all I really wish for him. So, obviously, you have yeah. another point to give across here. Nuclear energy, I, I want to make sure to the people at home uh, that I'm backing up what I'm saying. I want to provide a case. I'm not going to make assertions and not explain. Uh, the first point is that I wanted to say that it's, it's the most economical. Nuclear energy, despite taking up only 4% of the American energy production, um, they only have, we only have about, how many plants do we have? I think it's somewhere in the 10 to 20 range total in the entire U.S. And those 20 plants are 4% of the energy alone. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, if, if you want to get down to brass tacks, that's quite a lot for only about 10 to 20 plants. But it's also economical because it provides a lot of jobs. Nuclear plants are not easy to make. Uh, they take a massive construction crew. They're an industrial-sized construction crew. And the only impact on the environment, getting into the environmentalist part, is the foundation, is the concrete used to lay that foundation. That is the only wow. impact it has. They emit, they emit water vapor. That's what you see rising off of a nuclear plant if you live near one, is water vapor. It does nothing to the environment. Coal plants, on the other hand, produce carbon emissions, a massive amount of carbon emissions. So much so that they contribute to a, they they are speculated to contribute to a vast majority of climate change as it is viewed today and almost a hundred percent of smog detected you know a hundred percent of the smog reported in china and highly industrialized areas of the world so if we were to take those coal plants one by one not all at once and replace them with nuclear you would see a massive increase in energy production and a massive increase in environmental safety as well as air quality in the areas that coal plants are already stationed in that's a very good point and, yeah go on go on the and and just in case you you're not quite convinced uh viewers at home uh that <laughs> If you want to go ahead and look this up, this is a little bit of independent research you can do yourself, but if you want to compare and contrast the amount of yearly deaths related to fossil fuels, fossil fuels as an energy source, the carbon emissions that they produce, anything related to that, and the amount of deaths compared to nuclear energy and deaths related to that, is the, the, the number is massively different. The nuclear plants... Uh, nuclear plant deaths are very, very low compared to coal plant deaths. I don't have the exact numbers uh, right now, but you're free to look them up. And if it's wrong, then it's wrong. But I am absolutely confident. Then I'll see you in the I'm comments, saying. then, viewers. I'll see you in the comments. Go ahead. But it's. I feel that the main issue with nuclear and why parties aren't considering it is the stigma. The stigma of, of situations like Fukushima, like Chernobyl where a massive nuclear disaster took place because of the failure of multiple fail-safes, the negligence of multiple executives, natural disasters in Fukushima's case, which were outside of the realm, you know, outside of humanity's control, which is the only real risk with nuclear plants is issues outside of our control, like mm -hmm. earthquakes. Earthquakes, most, 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 most earthquakes. <clears throat> and other things that contribute to this stigma of thinking that nuclear energy is highly dangerous and that it's in, and that it's it, it can explode at any time it, it, it won't explode at any time 
fails there are multiple fail safes that were around even during chernobyl that would make the plant automatically shut down if the core reached a state that would be considered critical mm -hmm. all right and there would be iron there were there were lead bars that would be put into the core that would basically stabilize the uranium so it wouldn't as from what i can understand i'm not a nuclear engineer uh, you can ask someone that is and they they'll they'll explain it to you in better detail than i can but generally speaking, these fail-safes would make it so that an explosion would never take place normally. It's because in Chernobyl's situation, these fail-safes had not been maintained, and that they didn't work when the, time to, uh, when the time for them to take place happened. Not only that, but the executives that were in charge of these plants were either not present on the plant at the time of the meltdown, or ignored calls by the workers and people on shift that were trying to get their attention as to what was going on. <clears throat> though all of that culminated in the chernobyl nuclear disaster mm -hmm. it was nothing to do with the plant itself being unsafe and plants today are even more safe it's like airplanes there's a stigma of airplanes people don't like to fly some of the viewers here might think of that they don't like to fly because it's dangerous you see plane crashes where hundreds of people die all the passengers die flight three flight through 70 disappeared off the face of the planet there's 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 so much stigma around it, but in reality, when you go to look at the numbers, you'll see that aircraft, airplane-related deaths are a fraction of car our car car accident-related deaths because we're just more used to using automobiles. It, it's just a stigma. It's a stigma that prevents people from looking at the facts, and that's another issue that relates again to discourse. All of the topics here, Anthony, are relating to discourse. Stigma is another problem is when people have a stigma around nuclear energy it stops us from making real po progress in an industry because people are held back by beliefs that they don't want to change that they believe can't be changed because it's been proven to them in history <laughs> history sure i love history i think history should be valued and should never be erased but at the end of the day there's a when history's taking history at face value is a really good way of making yourself look like an ignorant person because just looking at the, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and not reading into it, you'll develop a stigma that shouldn't exist. And it stops us from making real progress. And I think that leads into, again, you know, as you mentioned, discourse and, and also just the level of education of, of when we're talking politics here, you know, how much emphasis we put on education is also an incredible talking point. Is, you know, that's basically the basis of your argument. So... Everything you really said is some is, is a sound argument to me, and I, I have no real uh, contradictions to it. So, uh, for the last section that we have here, with the amount of time that we have left, um, I wanted to talk about the last kind of staple of the Biden presidency, which obviously has something to do with labor, um, which would be the minimum wage debate. So, I'm going to let you give your thoughts on it first, because, I don't know, whatever, just go, just go first. <laughs> Now, I'm not, so the minimum wage debate, what, uh, let, let me know, what is, what is uh, his plans with the minimum wage specifically? Because so, I remember you had, a, you had a specific numbers in mind. I want to make sure I have the things straight here before I say anything. So the, the Biden plan with, very, very simply, the Biden plan with minimum wage is just to increase it through a bill uh, to $15. Right now it's at $7.50 or $7.25, one of those two. Um, and... Basically, he wants to just increase it very sporadically through the course of one bill. 
That's all that really it is. He's calling on senators to swiftly pass this legislation as it's all part of his American Relief uh, Plan Act or Build Back Better uh, plan. Relief, uh, like COVID relief, is that what he's essentially talking? COVID relief? Yeah, it's part. It's, it's part just, of his. Okay, interesting. It's part of his larger package. Yeah. So, so my my reaction to any minimum wage increase, especially on a federal level, is why, uh, and and the reason why it's why is because I have uh, I'm going to make this assertion here as I have utter faith that the invisible hand of economics controls where workers go. Uh, if, if, for example, a company like McDonald's doesn't pay its workers very well, and they don't pay their workers very well, they basically pay the minimum wage. I don't think they pay them anything over. They that, do pay the minimum wage. Yeah. They do the, Yeah, uh, it depends on the state, and it, you know, it depends because it's an enterprise. So some, some, some establishments in McDonald's might pay you better, some may pay you worse. I'm not sure. I don't know the exact data, but generally speaking, these companies, these, you know, these enterprises these big businesses will pay you very little money when you're on the lower down spectrum and so that's going to encourage and a, a smart worker thinks instead where can i get more money for my work and they will look on on websites like uh, indeed.com or or on job hubs where you're able to look at a vast array of jobs available to you the specializations of those jobs the pay and other details uh, without needing to do constant amounts of research and running around to different towns in different places looking for a job, you can just find it there. And I th and I think that that sh you should have more faith in that than minimum wage because minimum wage is a benchmark. It's not something that decides quality of living. It, it doesn't. It's a benchmark that other businesses will use to base their prices off of. Because think about it from this perspective. When you increase the minimum wage and make it illegal to pay them anything below that, that means a business is forced to pay them at that, obviously. But what that means to a business is that that's a massive hit to all of, all of their earnings. And that in itself is like, well, they can take a hit, right? Not so. Executives aren't stupid. They're taught from day one of being an economist that the purpose is to make as much money as possible. This is what a business does. That's the fundamental capitalist concept of a And business. to provide a profit to their shareholders. To yeah, provide so a good. profit to shareholders, to increase shareholder trust, to increase profits for everyone. It feeds into a group where everyone benefits. They don't want that disturbed. That's corporate knowledge. That's corporate smarts. You're an idiot if you don't, if you're, you're perceived as an idiot if you don't follow that principle that's a core principle of economics right uh, from it from an, from an enterprising standpoint so on the lower downs though they raise those prices to recoup losses so at the end of the day your standard of living remains the same but but the economy now is inflating the prices of objects that would otherwise just be lower from a lower minimum wage mm -hmm. if you wanted to increase standards of living here's what you do you reduce tutorials on the individual you reduce taxes on the individual. Mm -hmm. What does that do? Well, let me tell you what that does. And <laughs> and you explain it to me, but then I under but then I can explain it back. As, as from in my own words here is that when <clears throat> when you introduce tax cuts, when you make people pay less money, this means that they have more liquid capital at the end of the day. They've they have less taxes to pay, which means they have more money on hand. That money can be taken and reinvested into the market. Because at the end of the day, static currency, unspent currency, does not grant you happiness on its own. The individual is always seeking to be happy, to be entertained, to be in a in the best possible uh, um, the best 
possible sustainable living standards that they can. That's what it means to be a worker in, Amer in, in, Amer in America. So they're, of course, going to be putting that money back into the market to increase their standard of living, whether that be putting it into the tech industry, whether that be putting it into automotive, whether that be putting it into real estate for purchasing a higher quality house. It doesn't matter. It all gets put back into the economy, which flows back through. And we all know a healthy capitalist economy, a healthy market, is one where the cash is flowing nonstop. And I think the argument that you present is basically exactly what I believe in. So, um... Henry Ford, obviously, an industrial and automotive or automobile magnate in the 1900s, basically my hero of capitalism, believed in paying his workers fair shares, which he paid $5 an hour for. Now, $5 an hour today is obviously nothing, really. It's, it's awful. But you have to consider, obviously, inflation and deflation, economic rates, and things like that. So he paid his workers what the equivalent would be of probably $25 or $30 today, which is incredible to think about. His philosophy, and he was a little bit of a weird guy, you know, he believed six hours of sleep, six hours of production, six hours of working, um, or six hours of, of, um, of reinvesting, of, of shopping, I'm sorry. Um, so he was a little bit weird, but he believed that um, if he paid his workers highly, and he gave them benefits too, giving them a free Ford car, allowing them to reinvest back to the stock market with their uh, earnings and their dividends, um, and obviously paying them highly, he believed that the quality of his product would increase, and that is why Ford was such a staple of the American economy. Not only obviously that, but because he implemented division of labor and increased his production capabilities by using assembly line production, which was huge in the 1900s, uh, and sped up basically the process of making a car to like a day to like eight hours for a, an assembly line production team to make a, a car, which was incredible. Um, so all of those philosophies of Smith and Locke, I believe, come together nicely uh, in the invisible hand. And the reason I would disagree with you on the minimum wage debate is I believe that the minimum wage should be slowly increased as so to support capitalism. And my argument for this is, is that, obviously, as you said, I would supplement lower taxes and higher economic uh, benefits uh, and, and uh, incentives to do that. The, the whole point of lower taxes, as you said, should be to reinvest back into the, or the whole point of lowering taxes should be to give business owners an uh, incentive to invest back into the U.S. economy. Now, here is where I um, dissent. Owners, people like Bezos and, well, maybe not Gates, but I'll center in on Bezos. I do not believe Bezos as the magnate that he is, which he is providing a, a serious profit to his shareholders. Amazon stock is incredible, very expensive, but very doing very well. Um, I still do not believe he invests enough back to the U.S. economy. There are still reports of his worker conditions being horrible. There are still re reports of him not paying his workers high, highly enough. And I guess you could, uh, you know, dummy it down to uh, smaller levels of, of administration. But he is still the CEO of that corporation. I believe with the tax grants that he's been given, which he pays virtually no state or federal or one of the two uh, level taxes because he's Amazon is an international corporation, I believe that he must be investing back into the U.S. economy because that shows a little bit too much of a selfish and, in my opinion, a stupid businessman. So, in the end, my, my point is this. In order, to, uh, in order to support a fluctuating and flourishing capitalist society, I believe it comes with it. And I don't think this is... I think this is 
can be construed as like like socialist talking points, paying your workers highly and ensuring that they have more stake in what they produce, which is a Marxist thought um, that they should have entire stake in what they produce and that no one should sell in, uh, externally what they make, which obviously I very heavily disagree with. Um, but that if they invest back into the, into the U.S. economy somehow by paying their workers highly, that is a fundamental facet of capitalism. That is something I will agree with, and that is part of the uh, invisible hand because again they're paying their workers highly to increase the quality of their production and profit more for themselves now um this actually ties in well with um the tragedy of the commons which is a common philosophical counter to the invisible hand um the tragedy of the commons is essentially that everyone uh, is essentially a cattle farmer we all own cows uh, for a long period of time, uh, the land that we're given, the plot of land, uh, has not hit its capacity yet. We don't have to worry about overgrazing or lack of, of grass and obviously a lowering of utility, which would be terrible. But at a certain point, let's say, hypothetically, we hit the capacity. There is an option. There are two choices for the cattle farmer. There's one where he can um, just not do anything. That's option A, whatever. And then there's option B, where he can put still another uh, cow on the farm. And what this does is it inherently increases his utility by one. He's still going to get an extra stick of butter or an extra bucket of milk, whatever you want to talk about. So let's say that's plus one. But he is going to lose out collectively minus 0.1 as he is contributing to overgrazing by a fraction of a percent or a fraction of, of a whole. He is going to realize that or he's going to realize that there is clearly no incentive for him not to put another cow on the farm, uh, but rather instead that he, is, he obviously should, and as everyone does this, it's going to contribute to the degradation of society. So before I provide my counter to that, uh, which deals a little bit with Prisoner's Dilemma and Game Theory, I wanted to see if you had any counters to that argument against uh, the evils of individualism. Yeah, I, I, evils of individualism, rather. I, I present this. Uh, my own thoughts on that is it, it gets into the, the fundamental the fundamental Hobbes versus Locke theory of is man inherently good, inherently bad, inherently selfless, inherently selfish. Yeah, of course, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, political philosophy do tend to water down to that same theory. Um, and I would say that my my own perspective on it is it depends. It depends because it, it, it all depends on a variety of factors. But in this case, let's, let's use your farm example um, just to, to make sure that people understand what we're talking about here. The, for example, a, the ignorant individual is inherently ignorant, is inherently selfish, because they know not what they sow. So of course, when they go to reap it, they know not what they reap, and they know not the cost of it right mm -hmm. if you don't know if you if you're ignorant of the circumstances you'll be ignorant of of the Im, in the impacts <clears throat> and on the other hand though so those that are educated those that seek the truth those that find out the impacts on the environment the the overgrazing of of the farm being at maximum capacity they they find themselves at a crossroads they find themselves at at, at, at one of two decisions either one to stop the overgrazing, to, to stop it at the benefit of everyone, to ensure, to maintain that status quo for the sake of all, to take a selfless act, to take a hit to their own bottom line for the sake of others, for the sake of the greater good, or, or whatever it be, in, in whatever circumstance, or two, to knowingly remain ignorant and to, and to continue to profit from the, uh, from, from the negative impacts of your, own, of your own business or your own farm in this case. 
and either way it's 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 a dilemma because and i would say that those that are in the know are inherently good because if they choose to remain ignorant if they choose to continue to profit they will take that burden onto themselves instead of doing the selfless thing of not only not only t making it right to correct that issue to take a hit to their production for the sake of others but also to circulate that truth to make sure that the uh, the ignorant remain no longer ignorant that they too become aware of the truth and become inherently good at risk of your of damaging your own self i think that's an excellent point something you talked to me about uh, before we started this episode was being that ignorance is bliss. If you clearly don't know about the implications of what you're doing, you're in this blissful state that you can just keep adding cows when the reality is not so. And uh, actually, kind of, you know, low-key shout-out to my friend William who presented the dilemma that you describe is that my response to the tragedy of commons would inherently be a prisoner's dilemma. How can you figure out what the other people are going to do? My logic is very simple. I'm a consequentialist in philosophy, which means that I like to focus on the consequences of actions. If a robber breaks into a house with obviously intent to steal possessions, uh, but there happens to be a carbon monoxide um, influx in the house, and him breaking the window uh, actually brought oxygen and actual, you know, breathable air back into the house and saved the lives of the people who lived in there and were knocked out unconscious, then I still believe that what he did was a morally good thing. And obviously now, the next person that I have on this podcast, I know you're watching, not at all to be creepy, uh, but um, is definitely going to hold a more Kantian view that his moral was wrong. But that's a different philosophical approach, and that's something I'll get to at the end of the episode uh, with regards to where I'm taking the podcast. But, um... Either way, the consequences of the action would still be something I look at in this prisoner's dilemma here, as my friend William pointed out that it was. Um, so even if the person next to, let's say we have two people, even if the person next to this farmer that I've highlighted in my situation decides to be ignorant and put another cow on the farm, the fact that the one, one of the farmers, the other farmer, let's say, chose to not put a cow on the farm overall decreases the amount of degradation to society which is why that in this very basic view this is exactly where ideologies diverge in a very basic way i believe that people will tend to pull their cow that in most cases people will tend to do what's right for society and pull their cows off the farm now this is exactly where the divide begins and this is this very basic point of what will this individual do? What will the individual do if presented with the dilemma to benefit himself or society? Which will he do? And that, that creates the debate between commun communism, socialism, democratic socialism, and liberal capitalism. Right there. We've just identified it uh, in this episode of the podcast. But um, either other than that, um, we're just nearing our hour time limit. We're at like 58 minutes now. So uh, if you have any closing statements to make, I believe we've touched on everything we want to discuss, uh, obviously with regards to the uh, issue of minimum wage and things like that and how uh, a, an employer can truly contribute to society. Anything points you want, any points you want to give, obviously, uh, now is the perfect time. I'll say one last thing regarding that and then move on to my final statement. I would say that the fact that that debate exists in the first place proves that people are inherently good because so long as that debate remains so long as that conversation remains the conversation of 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 the farm of the overpopulation of the overgrazing of the impact to society as so long as it exists 
so too does the truth. So too does the inevitable realization of the, tr the truth as it remains. Whether or not the, the choice does not matter. The, the, uh, the, your side does not really matter. At the end of the day, what remains is that you are continuing to circulate the truth, the facts, the objective parts of that argument. And so people will, will view this and come to realize that and act based on it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's in a way a cognito hazard, which means a, a something that is something uh, that is, that affects you based on you being in the know. The fact of the debate, knowing the debate at all, means that you're in the know. You now know. So the choice remains, do you, t do you take the cow? Do you, uh, do you put the cow in? Or do you not? A question and at the will... end of the day, yeah, go on, go on. everyone will decide. I, 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 that's what I would say, is that so long as the debate exists, so long as that conversation exists, so too will the inherent good. And we'll, yeah, we'll... Appears is when the evil comes. Right, we'll, we'll leave that question up to, I guess, the comments and the viewers, is would you pull the cow or would you keep it in? Um, but for my for my closing remarks, uh, Anthony is sure. again. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. I was very excited to be on here, and a hello to all of the people that I, I invited to come watch a, uh, come watch today. Uh, and some of them I know come from the community that we are a part of, and a, a big hello to the people on there <clears throat> that have watched to this far. <clears throat> um, I don't really have any particular shout-outs to make, more just to my 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 state's own my state's own legislature. They've done a really good job of reaching across the aisle and really asking these big questions and engaging in discourse that we need in today's world. That's great. You love to hear it. You love, you love to, hear, to it. hear it. You love it's, to hear it's it. It's small. It's small, but it's it's good. Yes, my governor, my governor Chris Sununu. If somehow shout by out. some, yeah, shout out. If he somehow watches <laughs> this. Yeah, he's he's doing good so far. I'd love to sit down and talk with him in person about these about stuff like this. I would say that it's kind of the duty of a politician. One of politicians that are watching. Yeah. It's the duty of all politicians to sit down and talk with their people because exactly. the people that you talk to are inevitably are inevitably concerned citizens that know what they're talking about, that are passionate about it, and there's clearly something to take away from that over the my people that mindlessly go to the polls and vote. That's excellent. You know something? It's exactly why I chose you as my as my guest uh, tonight because of your intellectual skepticism and because of your quest for knowledge and that is the audience i'm targeting i'm not targeting extremism i may have extremists on this podcast as it gets more popular i don't know i might have more people like that but the, the target audience i'm looking at is the intellectual population that will not bend to uh slander politics and basically name calling dialogue that is now american politics and you exactly you you professionally define that for me so it's obviously been a pleasure and an honor having you on this podcast as for what i was going to say regarding where the podcast is going as you can see i'm mentioning like mills utilitarianism and kant and things like that so i'm going to be taking this podcast uh which i'm now going to call season two because i'm lazy uh, <laughs> is uh, I'm going to take it more into a philosophical track and we're going to really just be not, not so much looking at statistics and whatever maybe although obviously statistics are incredibly important to back up an argument but I really want just a fundamental philosophical debate as phil philosophy is really the, the bottom, the foundation of a lot of political debates and major political decisions that are made in today's climate so again thank you for coming on to the viewers uh hopefully i can restart with my weekly uh, upload schedule that i had before my apologies for not uploading as consistently uh, cons consistently uh but we'll definitely uh get that done 
as I continue with this podcast. And I'm definitely much more motivated now that I've had this episode. So thank you. Uh, everyone stay safe. Like, comment, and subscribe to see more. And I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.